0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is engineering legend Al Schmidt. First of all, Apple has just instituted a very interesting three-tier system of approved distributors for Apple Music. Now, this basically breaks down to preferred plus, preferred, and approved distributors. So what does a distributor mean? Well, that's the people that an indie record label, an indie artist would submit your tunes to in order to get it on Apple Music. Because as you well know, you can't actually submit directly to Apple Music. You have to use an independent distributor. Now, this is actually based on the number of tracks distributed to Apple Music in each quarter. So in other words, that determines which tier you're in. And it's also the level of service that's offered to users and the number of rejections that occur when music is pushed into the system. So you might not be aware, but content can be rejected based on the quality of the metadata. If it's not complete, for instance, if there's any copyright claims or if there's any publishing discrepancies, basically you have to have all the data there. It doesn't care so much about music or the quality of the music as it does care about everything else. So we have Preferred Plus, Preferred, and Approved. The Preferred Plus tier means that the distributor has submitted 40,000 titles, 40,000 songs per quarter, and there's only three of those. CD Baby qualifies, Contour New Media, which is a European distributor, and The Orchard, which is owned by Sony Music. Those are the only three that are approved for the Preferred Plus Now, in fact, there are 20 preferred distributors, and the qualifications are 10,000 songs per quarter. Among those are, believe, Digital and DistroKid and TuneCore and a lot of others that are in other parts of the world. And finally, there's everybody else that's approved, and there's quite a number of those. I'd say there's about another 20 or 30. And again, these are mostly from services that are pretty much around the world, not so much here. So what does that mean exactly? You know, we don't know yet. It may be that there's some advantage going with the preferred Plus member. This may be something that's more internal to Apple Music and distributors than it is to songwriters, musicians, artists, whatever. But it's worth taking a look at because Apple Music does things for a reason, and there has to be a good reason why they've differentiated between distributors. So keep an eye on this because this may be something that you can use to your advantage in the future. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at Osinskycourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com, all one word, Learn more. Now, Music Radar just had a very interesting article about the 10 greatest synthesizers. And synthesizers are interesting because there have been so many of them over the years, but there seems to be a golden age, and it's mostly in the 70s and 80s. Things haven't changed a huge amount since then. And as you'll see from these 10 that they've mentioned, most of them are from the 70s. And there's some from the 60s, but not that many. So number 10 is the Oberheim OBXA, And this was either a four or eight voice synth. that was programmable, had a very, very big sound. And it was also one of the few instruments at the time that you could actually have presets. So in other words, all the parameters you can remember, that was a big deal at the time. There are a couple other versions of this. OB-8 would have been my choice for this. That was the 8-voice version that came after the OB-XA. That being said, all of these Oberheim OB-8s had a very distinct sound, and they deserve a place on this ranking. Number nine was the Roland JD-800. This was a time of samples being included in synthesizers, and with Roland, with this particular synth, They had very high quality samples where most other synths at the time had, oh, pretty much 8 bit, really noisy, distorted, quantized samples that weren't that good. But this also had a lot of real time controls, which programmers really liked, but at the time that wasn't a big selling point. Nonetheless, It had a really big influence because the technology from the JD-800 actually popped up on other synthesizers since then, as well as all of the Roland modules. Number eight comes in at the Yamaha CS80. Not many people saw CS80s, and the reason why, they were really expensive and they were huge at 200 pounds. But this was an eight-voice programmable synthesizer That had aftertouch, which was a big deal, had a very distinctive ring modulator, but the problem was it was very unstable. (laughs) If the temperature changed, everything drifted out, and it really wasn't that good of a synthesizer, except for the fact that it had everything but the kitchen sink in it, and you could program up just about anything you wanted. So it was a programmer's dream, even though it was huge. It was portable because it was made as a portable keyboard. But that being said, there wasn't too many of them around. Most of them go for premium prices now. I think the last one I saw was about ten grand. Number seven was the Korg Wave Station. What made this distinctive is it had a bunch of samples again, but these could be stacked and layered and filtered and processed. So that made it fairly cutting edge for its time its time was fairly short but that being said it did make a really big impression because this was an example of things to come number six is the yamaha dx7 this basically was the sound of the early 80s but it was very distinctive it had 16 voices which was a lot for the time i think it was the most it had aftertouch and a velocity keyboard again big deals at the time because there weren't any other synthesizers especially at the price for the two thousand dollar range that was in It was just an amazing deal. It was also based around FM synthesis, which was rather new at the time. To give you an idea about its popularity and about its historical significance, the electric piano sounds can still be found virtually everywhere. You hear a sample library, and there's always these DX7 sounds because they were so distinctive. And of course, what they were trying to do is emulate a Rhodes or a Wurlitzer. and came up with something completely different but completely useful. Number five, the ARP 2600. This was interesting because it was a fixed signal path. That you could change with a bunch of patch cords. So in other words, you could reroute just about anything to anywhere else if you had these patch cords. It had fairly stable oscillators, which was a big deal at the time, especially with Moog having unstable oscillators. But it was not programmable. Couldn't be with the patch cords at the time. And it was really hard to repair because in order to keep the corporate secrets intact, all of the modules were encased in epoxy. So you couldn't really figure out what was going on and therefore you couldn't really repair it easily. However, there's a lot of great sounds. The one thing I remember specifically was if you listen to Suffragette City by David Bowie, all of what sounds like saxes at the end are all ARP 2600. Yeah, those aren't saxes. It's not Bowie playing it. It's ARP 2600. Number four was the PPG Wave 2.2, version number three. And this was a particularly big-sounding synthesizer that had analog oscillators with very short digital waveforms that were compiled in a wavetable. It was cutting-edge at the time. It also had some sampling. But the problem was it was really pricey at about $9,000 at the time, So you only saw them in studios for the most part or in very, very uh, high-end artist rigs. That being said, today we can get roughly the same sounds through Waldorf because Waldorf uses the same wavetable technology that was pioneered by PPG. Number three, the Sequential Circuits Prophet 5. This was totally groundbreaking and took the music world by storm almost overnight. It had five voices of polyphony, which at the time, we were happy with one and two voices, and all of a sudden here we have five. It could also store all the parameters. It could store your settings. This was revolutionary for the time. It was about 4000 bucks, which was reasonable. It was within reach of most players, or at least working players. And like I said before, it had a big effect on... The songs of the time, where all of a sudden everything was featuring Prophet Fives. Now the good news is Dave Smith, who was the founder of Sequential Circuits, just bought back the name and has actually come out with the successor called the Prophet Six. If you want that sound again and more, look at the Prophet Six. Number two on the list was the EMS VCS3. This was an English synthesizer that you didn't see much in the United States. But it was a big sound of the 70s, especially in English music. Uh, the big one I can think of is uh, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, used the VCS3 a lot. Also, the Who used the VCS3 quite a bit. And this is very significant in the way it looks. It has a push pin modulation panel, which you know was something that was very unique, still is unique. But like I said, you didn't see too many of them outside of England and Europe. And what's the number one synthesizer? Well, according to Music Radar, it's the Moog Mini Moog. Many think that this has the best sounding filter ever. It also put synthesizers within reach of every musician, because up until then, you were buying modular synthesizers and putting them together, so you didn't see that many of them, especially on stage. But the Mini Moog brought this to within the reach of the average musician, which was a great thing. It also sounded terrific, but it was very unstable, so anybody that ever had one knows that as the temperature changed, so did the tuning. That being said, the Mini Moog is number one on the list, and you won't get an argument from me over that. My guest today is one of the most revered recording engineers in the world today. Al Schmidt has won 22 Grammys, worked on 160 gold and platinum albums, and even received his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Al has worked with so many of the real legends of the music business, including Ray Charles, Miles Davis, Frank Sinatra, Sam Cooke, Jefferson Airplane, Jackson Brown, Neil Young, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Kenny Rogers, Toto, Bob Dylan, Steely Dan, Barbara Streisand, Madonna, Michael Jackson, Diana Krall, Celine Dion, Paul McCartney, Michael Bublé, and hundreds more. His new book is called Al Schmidt, On the Record, The Magic Behind the Music, was written with Maureen Droney and covers his six decades in the business. It even has a foreword written by Sir Paul McCartney himself. In the interview, we spoke about his book and some of the things that he didn't include in it, his favorite instrument to record, functioning in the world without equalizers, the secret to keeping up with technology, the difference between vintage gear and what we have today, and much, much more. Al and I spoke via phone from his home in Los Angeles. Let's talk about the book, Why Now?
1: <laughs> why now? I guess, why now? I, people kept asking me, God, you got to do a book. You've got to do a book, Al. You know, and people kept doing it, so finally Maureen Troney uh, came to me and said, you know, there's so much interest in, in a book, and, uh, you know, I'd love to help you with it. And... and uh
0: uh, you know I love Maureen
1: and so we sat down we'd sit down every Saturday she'd come over the house and we'd turn on the tape machine and and just start talking you know and she'd ask me questions and and that's how it came about it took about a year and a half and uh, and now tomorrow is the day it's released but uh, it's already doing amazing so far so we're kind of happy
0: wow that's awesome w- was there anything in the book Difficult for you to write, in other words, difficult for you to put in there.
1: Yeah, well, it wasn't difficult, but it, it brought back so many memories. Uh, you know, the the uh, dinner I had the last night with Sam Cook was uh, was kind of a tough one. To, you know, brought back a lot of memories, and that was tough to uh, get that done. Um, no, no, most of it was fairly easy to, uh, you know, it just kind of flowed out. I mean, there's a ton of stuff that's not in there, but, uh, you know, you can really do so much. And after the book came out, I really, oh, I should have done this or I should have done that, but, you know, should have, could have, would have.
0: Yeah. Okay. Give me an example of something that you wish you would have put in there.
1: Oh, well, some of the things that, uh, you know, some of the sessions when, you know, setting up and then realizing, uh, you know, the whole setup was wrong and how we had to just tear everything down quickly because the downbeat was in 10 minutes and try to reset the studio. Uh, Things like that that, you know, people talk to me about and, uh, you know, I'd bring up. Those are things I think would have been nice to get in there. And and it would have been nice to talk about uh, just what it was like to work with some of my friends. Not so much artists and all, but but friends, other engineers, and and so forth. I think that would have been could have been a nice chapter. But it's too late now. I'm, I I think we're going to do an audio book, so uh, maybe I could sneak that stuff in the audio book.
0: Some people have trouble working with their friends because there's sort of a competition there. Did that ever happen to you?
1: No, no, no. With me, it's just it's always been just the opposite. Absolutely, no, never. Uh-uh. I enjoy work with people that certainly people I like and respect. So you know, it's never any competition. I'm not in competition with anybody anyway. Uh, you know, I do what I do, I just try to be the best I can be that day and uh and and that's it. So I don't you know, I, I just I don't um grade my grade my work compared to anybody else's or anything else. What I do is what I do. And, and that's
0: it, well, you're pretty much beyond that now, <laughs> you know let's face it <laughs> you know after you've been around for a while and had the success that you've had, you no longer have to do that or worry about that,
1: yeah, well, I don't anymore i mean i i you know I used to get a little nervous before the sessions, certainly when I first started, um, and especially with uh, doing sessions, when I wasn't sure of like the first you know, horn sessions and the first big string dates and then, uh, uh, different, uh, uh, kind of bands and so forth. And I get a little nervous before, but you know, I've done it so much and, and the time that I spent at, uh, radio recorders and RCA and, uh, as an engineer, um, I did so many albums, uh, you know, back then you would do an album in two days, you know, and I was working from, uh, nine to 12 and then two to five and then eight to 11. And that was six days a week. And we're just recording all the time. And this of course was in the sixties. And, uh, when, uh, it was music business heaven at that point, you know, everybody was buying records and, and everybody was recording. So, uh, you know, it was pretty cool. Uh, I, I just don't get nervous anymore because I've done everything. I have. I don't think there's an instrument in the world I haven't seen.
0: That being said, is there one that's more difficult than another for you, than the others?
1: Uh, no. You know, getting a really good piano sound, I think, is, is uh, tough and all. Uh, my favorite instrument to record, believe it or not, is an upright bass. Um, I, I just, you know, I never wanted to play the bass. But I just love the way the bass sounds. And uh, so I always strive to get a great bass sound. And, and uh, you know, I have a lot of bass players who are, are friends of mine and fans, you know, because I I work hard getting a great bass sound. And uh, it's not that it's difficult. It's just that I make sure every little detail is taken care of.
0: I know there's a lot of ways to do that. What's your technique, if you don't mind?
1: Yeah, no, no, I don't mind at all. My technique, uh, so to speak, is I I use two M149s, Neumann M149s, and I love those because they've got a really nice top end to them that I like, plus they get that great bass thing. I put one about 12, 14, 15 inches from the F-hole, And then I put the other mic up near the fingerboard about the same distance from where the guy's playing with his fingers so I can pick up some of that that articulation there. And then I take the two mics and I put them in Summit limiters. I just tap them like a DB. I do it mainly because I just love the sound of the Summits and that it gives the bass, the the tube sound in there that gives it the bass. And that's it. Then I bring the platers up, make sure the uh, preamps are set and work them right, and uh, I'm all for running.
0: Let's go back to your book for a second. Was it difficult for you to remember the details of, you know, something that happened 40 years ago? Oh, yeah. I say this because having co-written the book with Ken Scott, I know that there were m- many situations where he just couldn't remember and he would refer me to other people who were there, and we'd kind of collectively put the picture together of what really happened uh, so I'm just wondering how that worked with you
1: yeah for me it was very difficult to uh, to do that because uh, you know trying to remember little details of things that happened and so forth uh, it was tough and, and and because there was no one else around back then um, you didn't have an assistant you were just the engineer who worked on it and a lot of those people that early in my career that I work with, uh, you know, are no longer in the business or they're gone. Uh, there was nobody to really back to. So those things are not in the book. And, you know, it's like anything else. Uh, you know, you remember it later and say, oh, man, what did I get that in there? Yeah. You know, because that little detail or this little thing. And, and, yeah, it's so... It was very hard to remember everything and all the details. Thank God for Marine because she was able to get stuff out of me, and she was able to look up things that, that I didn't remember. And there were some things, you know, thank God for the Internet, there were some things she was able to track down that way. Was
0: there something that she tracked down that completely had skipped your memory that you just hadn't thought about in years?
1: Boy, that's hard to say. I can't remember offhand right now. Uh, that might be a good question for Marie. Yeah. Um, she probably would know better than me. Yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, that's nothing I can remember right now. I wish I could, I can't.
0: You know, there's a situation when I was co-writing the uh, Ken Scott book where we were trying to figure out some things about Trident Studios and no one could remember. And it turns out that a friend of mine, a former roadie of mine from way back in my early Pennsylvania days where I grew up happened to be a Trident around the same time as Ken and had a picture and there was a picture of oh, wow. Ken and Roy Thomas Baker in the control room of Trident, and there was a tape machine behind him. And I showed this picture to Ken, and he says, that can't be. We never had a tape machine in the control room. I said, well, look, here's the picture. Here's the proof, right? And he just could not remember, even though there was photographic proof. So it just goes to show <laughs> you how, you know. I, he, well,
1: I know exactly. You know, I love Ken, but I know exactly what he was going through, because I it's the same way, and somebody say, well, here's a picture of i god i I can't remember that that's I just don't remember it like that, whatever it was, and uh so I know where uh, Ken is coming from, yeah. yeah, you know we've been doing this guys have been you know sixty years of making records um you know it's just i'm I'm lucky I remember my own name at this point you know <laughs> uh. Yeah, you know, you you every little things slip by and so forth. So, yeah, I have to read my own book to remember what I put in it.
0: <laughs> well, you know, that begs a the question. Then, so you've been doing this for a really long time, but yet you've been able to keep up with the technology where a lot of people can't. But you seem to roll with it with no problem. So, what's the secret of that?
1: The secret of that is having great assistance. You know, I've been blessed. Um, all my life, especially with, as, uh, you know, Pro Tools and that started coming in, uh, I've been blessed with work on like uh, Bill Smith uh, was my assistant for seven years, and Steve Genwick, uh my assistant now for 18, 20 years. Uh, I mean, these guys are all really on top of it. And they teach me little things and show me little things. And so I can get on Pro Tools and, they set up dot one dot and that goes back to the beginning and I know how to go forward and I know how to reverse and how to find certain things. But if you asked me to go in and start tuning, forget it. I wouldn't know how to do it. You know, um, we, we never did any of those things earlier. So, so I'm blessed with working with, uh, you know, there's another guy at Capital Channel, I that I work with a lot and, uh, you know, these guys are amazing and they, they know, my shortcomings and they just take care of it they don't even talk to me about it they just just it. so yeah i'm blessed
0: you were so lucky to come up with some of the best equipment that was ever made the best sounding equipment that was ever made and stuff that we look back on you know and revere is that the way you feel about it do you feel like modern gear is up to the task or have we gone past what was kind of like the best sound
1: Oh no no! I think some of it is really up uh, up to, up to the, the the test of things. Uh, you know, there's, they're making some great microphones today uh, uh, that are amazing, um, preamps that are amazing, uh, consoles. I mean, uh, I, I love working on the the uh, Neve 88R. Um, yeah, no, I think, uh, I think we've been rolling along pretty well at a pretty good pace. The thing is, when I started, we didn't have equalizers and we didn't have compressors. So you had to learn how to do everything without those. So to get a brighter sound on the guitar, I used a brighter microphone uh, to use, you know, whatever I used on the drums to make sure I was getting a nice cymbal sound and all. I used a microphone that would do that. Um, so I learned how to use my microphones as equalizers pretty much. And, you know, I, um, you know, when all when the when two the microphones started coming out, the quality of, was so great. And being able to take a microphone and put it from cardioid when you're listening to something and then put it in Omni and hear the difference of what happens to the mic and how it sounds because it's picking up ambience from the room and all. Um, I just, I, I just don't ever use EQ. Uh, the only EQ I ever use, and even when I'm mixing, I don't use EQ except on the, on the, uh, on the bus. when uh, you know, the mix bus yeah. on the out- outside. I use, uh, an API. Okay. I get air and, and a tiny bottom thing and that's it. Wow. So I could, I could function very well in a world without equalizers. The only time I really use them is if I'm mixing somebody else's something that I got from somebody that maybe was recorded in a little dumpy little place or something and it sound. and then I may get in and start equalizing and trying to. But I think equal, when you put a lot of equalizers, you're changing the phasing yeah. all over the board and all, and it just it totally affects the way things sound. People say, God, your sound sounds so clear and so warm and all this shit. Well, maybe that's the secret. Try doing stuff without equalizing. See what you can come up with.
0: Yeah, especially the generation coming up now. I don't know that they're taught that way or probably haven't been taught that way for a long time. That uh, microphones are important and placement and the type of microphone that you're using. So, yeah, I could see that, definitely. Yeah, I agree. You just mentioned something that's interesting. So... How often do you go in and change a pattern on a microphone? Because it sounds like you're not afraid to go to Omni where, you know, a lot of engineers, they only use cardioid. They don't even think about that. Yeah, no, no. 90%
1: of the microphones I use are in Omni. If I'm doing a big band session, I have five saxophones on the, the, uh, five uh, mics on the saxophone. They're all in Omni. But four mics on the trumpets, they're all in Omni. I'm not worried about stuff leaking back and forth. That gives the depth to things. It gives that almost three-dimensional sound. So no, um, I, I I use my mics in Omni quite a bit. In string dates, all my string mics are in Omni. All of them. Yeah, I, I just, it's the way I, I learned and, and, you know, I I had set up a session one time where all the mics were in unidirectional and we had set them up and it just wasn't right to me. And so I said to the assistant, let's go out and change all this. So we took the mics and put them all in Omni. And the whole thing changed. It was like somebody turned a light on and we were capturing all the walls of the room and and the air. It, It was like we looked at one another... And that was it from then on. You know, I don't even, I mean, that's where I go. I put the mics up on, on big orchestra dates to all in Omni.
0: But see, again, you're not afraid of leakage, and you you use it to your benefit.
1: Yeah, I embrace it, yeah.
0: There's a whole generation of engineers that don't look at it that way. They think, well, I want as much isolation as possible.
1: When I go to mix with the masses in, in Europe all well, the time, and and I go every year, and there's always 15 engineers from all over the world. You know, Singapore, Finland, China, um, South America. They come from all over, and they're all amazed at at how we we do things and and uh, and what I mix and how I set up things. and And you know, I'll get their mixes, and we'll play it back and listen to it. And then I'll get the files, and I'll put up the uh, a mix. And in fifteen, twenty minutes I'll have a better mix than they have and I'm not using any EQ. <laughs> so, you know, it's, they're all stunned by it, you know, they they stand there and they just shake their heads. You know, but they're in there with all these artifacts and all these plugins and trying to do and and when you get rid of all that shit, it it makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying it's it's worthless. Uh, you know, because there are certain times when uh you know, a plug in equalizer might be just what you need to help DS something or whatever. Um, but you know, I don't use plugins ever, I don't mix in the box. Um, and that's it. And if people that hire me know that, so they hire me for what I do, you know. How long do
0: your mixes take?
1: Oh god, I listen, I just mix it. I mixed a whole trio album with uh, a jazz trio. I mixed a whole 11 songs in one day. Mm. Uh, you know, be, we did 18 songs with the uh, carpenters, and I mixed them in two weeks. Uh, normally, I, I mix very fast. I, I usually can do two, sometimes three mixes a day, especially if it's something I recorded. Yeah, yeah. When I'm recording, I'm already figuring out what I'm going to do mixing. I place things where I'm going to put them in in the mix and that kind of thing. So, you know, I make sure the levels are great, that there's a good balance. So you can take a ruler and put the faders up and and have a pretty good mix.
0: Now, that being said, you're picky about your ambience, though, the reverbs that you use. And I, I know you have favorites there.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I use, you know, I love, uh, the live, uh, Chambers of Capital. I'm blessed that I get to use them. Uh, I, I love the Bocasti, uh, great one. I have an M6000. Uh, there's a 480 that I use. Um, trying to think of what else. Uh, oh, um, um Tegan, is, it, is it? Yeah. The German company, they make a great echo. Tegan, I think it is.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Great. Yeah. 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 They make they make a great reverb that I love. I've been using that a lot lately. So uh, yeah, they make great stuff.
0: So then, are you using different reverbs on different mix elements?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I try to. I try to keep. You know, I try not to put more than two things in the same uh, reverb. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I have a special. You know the certain live chamber I use for strings another live chamber that I'll use for vocals and when my vocals I'm usually using a live chamber and a potaski and it's a combination of the two and I tweak it until it just sounds the way I want it to sound and that's it
0: Mm -hmm. let's get back to your book again yeah what's your favorite part of the book
1: Ooh, my favorite part of the book is the ending when everybody's in the book is talking about what it's like to work with me. I think that's one of my favorites. Then, of course, how how not could you be a favorite part with Paul McCartney doing the forward in the book? Um, that was that was so cool. Working with Paul was really quite an experience uh, the first time I worked with him. It, it was just, I, I, I was so blown away by his talent and And the kind of person he is, I mean it it just doesn't get any nicer than Paul McCartney. He's just such a cool guy, um uh, and it was so much fun making that record, so part of the book is that, and you know, making the record talking about that and just reminiscing i you know it was great uh to um Marie would bring something up, and I would uh. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. And then I'd remember something and talk about what what it was. So those are some of my favorite parts because it made me remember back when those things were happening. You know, there are things in the book like when I, I worked with Sammy Davis, I did uh, What Kind of Fool Am I? I did a bunch of things with Sammy and I loved him. And he was so much fun, you know, and, and it was always a contingent of people in the control room sitting around drinking and stuff and, and having a good time. Uh, and, uh, you know, just when I did uh, What Kind of Fool Am I, was on a Saturday. And uh, this is an interesting story because Marty Page was the arranger. Now I was the engineer and the producer of the record. Forgot there was a date. It was on a Saturday and he never showed up. <laughs> he got credit for doing it, but that's the way it came out. Yeah. Huh. I mean, that, things like that happened quite a bit. There were also times when guys would come in. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to be a producer at, at, uh, at one point in my life was, uh, you know, guys would come in and be on the phone. Mm. And they, they weren't producing a record or they, they'd they come in, they'd do a song or two and leave. And then the, the hit would be one that we did after they left. <laughs> um, so I thought, geez, these guys are getting all the credit and making all the money. And, and, and I'm doing all the work here. I might as well get in on that, too. So that's when I made that transition from uh, from engineer to uh, to producer, and then at RCA, when I made that transition, I was not allowed to touch the board anymore because of the union problems. Wow! So uh, so I just stopped engineering for a period of time, almost six years. Wow! Uh, I was just producing.
0: Did you burn out in producing?
1: I did. I did burn out in producing. Uh. uh, uh uh, uh, Tommy LaPuma got me back. He he asked me, uh, he said, I oh, you were a good engineer. Well, Bruce Bartnick was, was working on this project with him and Bruce had a leave to go through the doors. So he said, you were a good engineer. Will you mix this sound for me? And I said, oh, Tommy, I don't think I can do it anymore. He said, come on, it's like riding a bike. And we made a deal and I went in and did it. And as I started putting the album together and mixing it, I thought, this is my first love why am I not doing this? Hmm. You know, this is what I got into business for and all. And it was a state Mason record called Alone Together.
0: Oh, I remember. And uh,
1: yeah. it was just a great, you know, great record. And yeah. and it got me back into it. And then I realized I was, uh, you know, producing, you, you have to, uh, you got to figure out a budget. If the artist doesn't write songs, you got to find songs for the artist. You got to um, uh, hire the musicians or hire a an arranger and a contractor. And and I mean, it's all falls on you. And then, uh, you know, if you're doing both, then you're engineering also. But at one point I wasn't doing both, but still it was so much work. And I had 11 artists that I was dealing with at RCA and it just burned me out. And that's when I left and just started producing the uh, Jefferson Airplane.
0: Yeah, we talked about the Jefferson Airplane once before. I I remember asking you about that first album. Why is there so much reverb on it? And you said, well, I didn't do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I wasn't the engineer on it. Oh, the first album. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I did, uh, the first album I did was Faxes. Ah, okay. Maybe it's faxes. Yeah, I know. That's one of the reasons I wound up with the Airplane, because they hated the way those records sound it. Yeah. There was just too much echo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on everything and they and they and then when they try to uh the producer was adamant and all and, and with me it was just the opposite I was making their record not my record
0: you know you mentioned Paul McCartney before and I'm curious because Paul I would assume is used to working one way and he's come up in the Abbey Road EMI system was it any different when you worked with him did he ask you to do things that that you weren't used to, or did he want to work with the way you do things? How did that work?
1: Yeah, I know. He wanted to work with the way we did things, you know? Uh, uh, Tommy LaPuma and me, and uh, Diana Crawley's was a big part of it. Uh, yeah, he, he put himself in our hands, so to speak, because he had never made an album like this. He had always wanted to do a record like this. He wasn't even was sure he could do it. And the first date we did was kind of an experimental date. Just to see if he was able to do it, and it took uh, maybe an hour or so, and then all of a sudden it just clicked, and then, and he came out, and he would love to come in to control him because I'd have a good balance, I'd have a nice echo on the voice and everything, and it'd sound almost like a record, and he'd come in and listen and and you know I'd see this smile on his face, and yeah, now and he realized he could do this, and you know, because when he was a kid all his aunts and uncles would come over or they'd go to one of their houses and they'd roll up the rug and they had a play a piano and they would sing all these songs. The family would sit around and everybody, and he always wanted to do that. It was amazing uh, to watch that happen. And, and, you know, to watch him and, and that, I don't know how well you know Paul, but he gets a twinkle in his eye and, and you know that, that everything is right. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, it's really cool to watch him.
0: Do you have a favorite part of your career?
1: Oh, I guess, uh, you know, I loved it. I was a bebopper, uh, you know, and I loved those. That was a favorite favorite time in my career. You know, with Chet Baker and Jerry Mulligan and Shoot Sims and, and uh, Charlie Parker and Lenny Churchano and all those great, those were the things I just loved, because I used to pay a dollar when I was 16 and go to a club like the Royal Roost or Pop City, and those places, just to hear these guys. And now all of a sudden, I'm in the same room recording them. Mm. It was like a dream. It's like, when they were walking in, it's like watching Babe Ruth and Joe DiMaggio come into the control room, you know? They they were my heroes. So that that was that's my favorite time, yeah. Although I love what I'm doing now, you know, I do a lot of big band things and orchestra things and all. We unfortunately we're not doing a lot of jazz anymore and we just lost Roy Hargrove yeah. and uh, you know, jazz trumpet player and um uh, and I did a bunch of records with him and they and they were always fun. I do it just I did one earful which is just uh quintet, uh, trumpet saxon and bass, drums, and piano. Uh, That's the fabulous record. I just love that record. Uh, I recorded this big band. Uh, yeah, so... And, and Diana Carl is another one. I love... You know, she comes in with the rhythm section and and all the orchestrations are done later, but it's so much fun just at that particular time, you know? Her, the piano, the the, the musicians, and watching everybody play off everybody else and how they they make their changes and and it's it's wonderful you know and when I you know some of these kids are making a record the drummers in the studio the bass players in Canarsie somewhere uh, <laughs> the guitar players in San Diego <laughs> you know that I and mean, it they're, they're not playing off one another they're playing right like what's there in front of them Uh but when everybody's in the studio, you can see the changes. The guy hears the guitar player, keyboard player, hears the guitar player do a certain thing, and he comes up to does something that riffs off that. That doesn't happen when you're making records one instrument at a time. And uh, I don't do those things, fortunately. And, uh, you know, and it's just, I love musicians. I love to hang out with them. I love when they come in. I'm always out there with them chatting and seeing how everything is and talk to them about their, their instrument and what's the best sound and what do they like. And You know, I try to make it fun for everybody, you know, not hard stuff going on. you. You know, I'm trying to get a drum sound for three hours. If I don't have a drum sound in 10 minutes, I'm never going to get it.
0: You know, you mentioned something over and over while we've been talking, and it's how much fun you were having or how much fun the session was or how much fun a certain person was. And it seems like that's a central part of what you're doing.
1: It's it's the most, it's the best. I mean, I wouldn't do this if I wasn't uh, having fun. I, I tell people all the time, I lie to my wife when I tell her I'm going to work, you know. I mean, I don't go to work, I go to play, you know, I go in there, I'm just hanging with people I like and people I love, I'm I'm making music, some of the music's gonna affect the lives of millions of people around the world, you know, and bring joy to them and passion and and things, and how the fuck can you not enjoy doing that, yeah. especially if you can do it, yeah. you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, right, right. And you're still busy, you're still working on lots of stuff all the time.
1: Yeah, I just finished the uh, the uh mixing the carpenter's record uh, with the, the carpenters with the uh, uh London Symphony Orchestra and it's uh it'll be out December seventh. Mm. And uh we kept Karen Karen in the background, you know, reading at the orchestra and all that and uh, I mixed it all with, with the help of Chandler Harrod and Steve Chenwick, like, you know, we we finally were able to get it done and, and it's it's an amazing record. And Karen was one of the great singers of all time. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I, I'm trying to stay busy. I'm, I'm taking a little time off now because of the book. You know, I'm doing serious radio interviews and that kind of stuff. So I'm just kind of kicking back. I worked a lot this year. And I'm just relaxing. I, I have an album that I did with uh, Trisha Yearwood. That'll be out, I think, in January. That's an amazing record. She sang a lot of the old Sinatra songs, and uh, uh, Vince Mendoza did the orchestrations with a sixty-two piece orchestra, and it's just a wonderful record. And then I, I finished Martina McBride's album that just uh, just came out. I think it's Christmas album, and uh, so yeah, life's good. <laughs>
0: Last question, Al. What's the best piece of business advice that either you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you?
1: Well, business advice is to get a really good lawyer that you trust. That's that's the best thing I can advise you to do because if you leave it up to people, other people or you say, oh, I don't care or whatever, you're going to get screwed out of a lot of money because I know I did. You know, I know along the way I got, uh, where I thought I was getting points on things was promised points on things. I never got them and, and I had nothing written. I didn't have an attorney, uh, take care of those things. So yeah, that's one of the best things. And the other thing is follow your heart. Do what you love to do. You know, get in there and do what, what makes you happy. And if it's being a recording engineer or a record producer or a songwriter, you know, good luck. Do it. You can find
0: out more about Al at alschmidtmusic.com, Al-A-L-Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-T-T, music.com, all one word. And his book is available from just about every bookseller, including Amazon. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyowintercircle.com or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, and now Spotify. At Osinski.com and BobbyOinnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts to your new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.